Ahoy there and welcome to Sea Views where we talk about the big issues in maritime. It's a really sad fact that we lose one seafarer every day. And there are estimates we're losing a fisherman every five minutes. I'm Julia Gosling. I've worked in maritime safety and search and rescue for 20 years. And I've met some truly inspiring people. I want you to meet them too. Can we all make some changes that will make the workplace at sea a safer place? Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Jeff Parfit from the Nautical Institute. Welcome, Jeff. Lovely to see you and have you with me today. Good morning, Julia. Thank you very much for the uh, generous invitation. Now, let me know a little bit more about your role at the Nautical Institute, because it's quite an interesting role, isn't it, Jeff? Well, it is. And as head of safety and environment, I am tasked with proposing initiatives in the global context that have a direct impact on seafarers. In collaboration with other partners, we have developed our green curriculum, and this green curriculum maps out our concerns and recommendations regarding the introduction of new alternative green fuels and the potential hazards such fuels expose our seafarers to. We're in the fourth industrial revolution, and it is an era of high emerging technology, the world is changing very, very fast. We've all seen the recent threats about AI, haven't we? And life is changing so fast. What concerns me and what concerns the Nautical Institute is the pace of introduction of these green fuels and the dangers and hazards associated with them to seafarers. And it is very important that seafarers are not left behind and are regarded as collateral damage on the road to transition. Yeah, so traditionally, Jeff, I don't think international shipping has been seen to be leading the way in a quick response to climate change. Now, what are the forces that are happening at the moment that's going to make this happen in shipping? Well, I think that's true. I think what you've said is accurate. International shipping has been slow to get on board with climate change. And in fact, the IMO has been criticised by the UN for its lack of ambition and that it was publicly criticised during COP26. But in 2015, as a bit of background here, the Paris Agreement was negotiated at the United Nations Climate Change Conference near Paris. And the long-term goals were set to keep the rise in mean global temperature to below two degrees Celsius and preferably limit it to one and a half degrees. So that means that greenhouse gas emissions have to be reduced by approximately 50% by 2030 and reach net zero by 2050. After all, it has been established that ships are responsible for 3% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, that's significant, isn't it? But the difficulty is, of course, it's an international world and so it's very hard to get agreements, isn't it? Well, it definitely is. And not everybody is on board with it for various competing reasons, mainly commercial reasons, frankly. Not everybody can respond in the timeframes. There are no clear leaders. There's a a few early movers who have decided to go with the few options of clean fuels that are being touted. But there is no clear direction either from the IMO 
or other segments of industry. So there is a reluctance, an understandable reluctance, by ship owners to commit huge sums of money to a technology that may fail. Yeah. I want to go back to this contribution that shipping makes to the global greenhouse gas emissions. How much are ships responsible for? So uh, ships are responsible for 3% of global greenhouse gas emissions, and that is significant. So during 2018, in support of the Paris Agreement, the IMO adopted what is known as its initial strategy with an undertaking to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from ships uh, by 50% by 2050. That's uh, 50% compared to the 2008 figure. However, because they have received criticism from the UN during COP26, the IMO are now widely expected to announce a revised strategy this year. So we do expect them to increase that target, possibly even to 100% reduction by 2050. Mm. Yeah, well, this means that there's a tightening of the time frame because they're slow to start. That time frame simply condenses and with an even higher target, the pressure is on to find the correct or, or the solution to green fuel that is required. So you talked about the profitability of shipping. This is obviously quite an important factor in how quickly industry can change, isn't it? Well, absolutely, because the proposed fuels, the front runners, are principally ammonia and methanol. Well, that requires re-engineering, a new engine design and, and all kinds of, of technical issues. So for a ship owner, has to take a gamble on which fuel. Well, that could result in a stranded asset, perhaps if they go with ammonia technology and ammonia doesn't make it, it doesn't become the chosen green fuel, they're then left with huge investments that they can't use. So it is a significant risk for ship owners. People have heard a lot about green fuels, but may not be clear on what that actually means. Could you explain what are the options in terms of green fuels and sustainable shipping propulsion systems? Well, the main contenders for green fuels, also known as alternative fuels, uh, include ammonia, hydrogen, methanol, LNG and fuel cells. You do hear mooted the nuclear option. And whilst it may become significant in a few decades, it is not a viable option at this time. But there is very rapid development of molten salt reactors in the last two years, which is showing great promise for the future. And that's nuclear? That's the nuclear option, which a few years ago was laughed at, impossible. But even in the short time span of two to three years, molten salt reactor development has become commercially viable. But of course, there are all, all kinds of issues connected to having a nuclear-powered vessel in your port. So it may become the solution in the future, but it isn't the immediate solution to the issue we have now. So ammonia, hydrogen, methanol, ethanol and fuel cells. And LNG as a transitional fuel. Yeah, so LNG is often talked about within this mix of moving to a sustainable fuel. But it's not actually a green fuel, is it? So it's obviously from fossil fuels. Can you talk to me about the position or the role of LNG, liquid natural gas? Well, LNG is considered as a transitional fuel. You're right, it is a fossil fuel. 
and therefore has greenhouse gas emissions. But one of the significant advantages of LNG is, is that it is available in abundance. There is a supply chain there, an established supply chain. There are already specialist vessels with specialist crews. And uh, so far, they have a very good industry track record with very few safety incidents recorded. So it has a very good history because it is a dangerous, a very dangerous fuel. It's a cryogenic fuel carried at minus 165 Celsius, and it is highly flammable. But it has a very good track record and it's readily available. And is it actually cleaner when it's used for propulsion in shipping? It has a cleaner burn, but the problem with LNG is something called methane slip. And methane slip is a a problem experienced where unburnt methane gas passes through the ship's combustion system into the atmosphere. And that gas can cause as much environmental damage as heavy oil emissions. So it is not a perfect solution. However, it is a possible transitional solution whilst the industry finds the path it wants to take with the green fuels and the supply chain is developed and comes online. So, Jeff, methanol and ammonia are the front runners in terms of the alternative green fuels at the moment. Can you talk about the risks associated with those fuels? You're quite right. The two front runners are methanol and ammonia. And at this time, shipping companies, the early movers, are choosing whether to go with one or the other. In both these products, there is a supply chain issue because they're not available in bulk around the world. So supply chain is an issue with these new fuels. In the case of ammonia, it is particularly dangerous as exposure to a loss of containment has very serious repercussions for the crew and possibly the surrounding environment. So the other front runner of alternative fuels is methanol. And methanol is not without its safety issues. It has long-term health exposure effects. It burns without a flame, making it difficult to detect in an engine room environment. And it's highly flammable. Bunker tanks must be inerted, etc. So methanol and ammonia, they're widely different fuels with widely different concerns for safety and health hazards. Okay, there's a lot for shipping companies to deal with there. Now, would I be right in saying, Jeff, that ship construction and propulsion probably hasn't changed so dramatically since steam power came along? What is this going to mean in terms of safety and training implications with the introduction of these new fuels? Well, this is true. So when we talk about safety, we must have guidelines in place. We must have a harmonised system of implementation across STCW. Variables in training standards across flag states must be eradicated. We can't have training for these fuels regarded as another tick box exercise. Are some of these standards actually even there in the current legislation? Because obviously some of this is so new, isn't it? Well, it is. That's true. And here at the NI, we have examined what framework is there. And whilst they're not specific to these alternative fuels, We believe they can be adapted and we have uh, looked at other papers, in particular from DNV's Just Transition Workforce paper published last year. And there is a recommendation that the existing STCW gas training courses could form the framework of any STCW recommendations for alternative fuel training. And that is a two and five day course. 
we actually back this. We think this is a good recommendation and a viable solution, which is quite quick. When would that be in place then, potentially? Well, STCW recommendation for these new fuels for training will probably be agreed this year. However, we know from uh, experience it takes at least five years to come into operation. So any STCW recommendations will not come into force until at least 2028. So then we need industry to adopt interim measures and really they need to use the recommendations rather than uh, circumvent them. So, Jeff, the time frame then could be by 2028 in terms of STCW recommendations. What will shipping do in the interim if things are actually happening now? Well, there's only a few early movers, but more of these vessels are going to come online. What they will need to do is to conduct full and comprehensive risk assessments for their crews, for the handling and use of these fuels. They need to take instruction from the engine manufacturers and they need to take instruction from flag states because what could happen here if ship owners and operators do not comply with stringent recommendations or have stringent procedures in place, their ships could potentially be refused entry into other countries who see them as a hazard, as a risk to the local port area. Okay, that could be serious. So what about vessels that are currently built in a conventional manner for propulsion? Will there be much retrofitting in terms of adapting existing vessels and what kind of issues might there be with retrofitting vessels now? Yes, I've read uh, there are quite a few articles on proposals to convert various vessels and, and retrofit them. Uh, I've seen it for large ore carriers being retrofitted to ammonia. Uh, I don't think they're in operation as yet. The problem with retrofitted ships is that they never quite work. They are trying to be something they were never designed for. And that will inevitably throw up unforeseen issues and hazards. And I think this is something classification societies need to be all over. Because there is a practice of classification societies issuing dispensations for design variations. And it can be quite controversial. What's the point of having a design requirement if class are then going to allow a dispensation. And now in terms of actual new vessels in the future, will this actually lead to a better standard of ships in the future? Will there be improved standards of ship build quality and ship maintenance? Well, that's difficult to judge at this point. It is true that this new technology required will be more expensive and therefore the maintenance systems, tank construction is going to be more expensive, but will that be a better standard? At some countries at this time are now demanding that vessels that visit their countries have an upper age limit of, say, 15 to 20 years. Well, you may think uh, that will provide them with newer, younger ships, so therefore they would be of a better quality. But the problem here is, is that ship owners will only build a ship to last for 15 to 20 years rather than a 30-year build. Therefore, it's a cheaper poorer quality build. So economics can come into this and cause some issues potentially? Oh yes, I mean it is about money. It is about what the ship owner has to spend. Yeah, I mean it's a vast investment as well, isn't it? A, a new ship of the sizes that a lot of modern vessels are. It's a huge investment, it's a huge gamble and the ship owner could be left with a stranded asset if they choose the wrong fuel 
if they choose a design that is more expensive than required for the 15 to 20 year lifespan, it is a big gamble for the ship owner. And this is potentially one of the reasons why it's not moving forward as fast as it might have done, because it's very hard to forecast which technology they should be backing. That's absolutely right. There has not been a firm guidance from the industry, from the IMO, in the direction that ship owners should go. So there is a lot of confusion. There's a lot of uncertainty. Which technology do you use? Is the fuel going to be there? Is the supply chain going to make it? Will flag states, will port states accept ships with that fuel in their port? So all this is still in the mix, whilst a clear direction has not yet emerged. I'm wondering on some of the practical aspects of the new fuels. Will ships have shorter endurance, for example, on these new fuels, or is it going to be fairly equivalent? Well, that's a very good point, because... All these fuels require a larger bunker capacity to produce the same range. So typically, these fuels require two and a half times the existing volume of current bunker capacity. And in the case of liquid hydrogen, it's five times the space. And uh, if it was a gas, 15 times the space. So if they keep the same bunker capacity, their range will be reduced. And what we are seeing is potential for dual fuel ships, where perhaps a container vessel uh, would be methanol outbound and traditional fuel oil back. Yeah, so actually not so different to what we've seen in the electric car market, is it? That the first tranche are hybrid and later they become all electric, obviously with all electric being better because that's what the actual car was designed for, yes? Yeah, (laughs) indeed. The halfway house isn't always the best, is it? No, but if the fuel isn't there, if you travel to the Far East to pick up your containers and you can't get methanol, how do you get back? So at the moment, supply chain is also a very major issue with these vessels. Yeah, so another analogy with the car market, isn't it? You know, we're all thinking, well, if we do buy a fully electric car, are we going to be able to charge it up? And obviously in shipping, it's on an exponentially larger scale, isn't it? Yeah, but it's a fair analogy. Mm. Now, um, this issue with fuels and bunkering and where the fuel comes from, where it's stored, this is going to have some knock-on effects on ports, isn't it, in terms of fueling vessels. What do you think is going to be some of the impact on ports? Well, this this is another uh, key point. We've only discussed the ships themselves, but of course they need ports. They need the port infrastructure in place to support these vessels. How will safe bunkering take place? While it's going to become complex, there is no easy or simple path here. The traditional bunker ships that knock around the world are not particularly sophisticated. They may well be high-spec bunker vessels in some parts of the world, but they're not in many. They're just functioning small tankers. So I think it's going to be a real issue to have these green fuel bunker vessels uh, in all parts of the world. And also within ports, I mean, you mentioned that the actual bunkering capacity is often a lot larger for the same amount of miles, if you like, of fuel. Will that mean that new fuel jetties are going to be required and big changes like that? 
the problem here is, is that these ports require a bunkering infrastructure and not all ports will want these fuels handled inside the port. And I've, I've read about uh, remote bunkering, perhaps in a channel or whatever. But at the end of the day, these ships carrying these fuels still come into port. And where are these huge quantities of ammonia and methanol going to be stored? In terms of the future for green fuels, and we've talked about shipping companies, but should seafarers themselves be concerned or worried about any of these new fuels? Well, absolutely. There are associated health risks, uh, in particular with methanol and ammonia. And really, that was the major concerns of the Nautical Institute when we started this green curriculum initiative. It is about seafarer training and seafarers understanding the risks associated with handling these fuels. If I could just outline some of the health risks in the case of ammonia, which is a front runner, it is particularly dangerous with regards to exposure through loss of containment. I mean, a seafarer who was unfortunate to just breathe in uh, ammonia, it could cause instant and irreversible respiratory damage. In the case of methanol, another front runner, it also has long-term health exposure effects. It is highly toxic. It produces high levels of formaldehyde, which can cause blindness. So the crew need to be properly trained specifically in the handling of these fuels. Yeah, so it can't really just be an add-on to a checklist. Things are going to be different on vessels that are carrying these fuels, aren't they? Well, I think that's our concern at the NI, that the current training that's in place for many uh, STCW subjects is too much of a variable between flag states. And we would like to see that variable removed. We would like to see a consistent standard of training implemented across the industry. So, Jeff, I know that you are interested in maritime safety. You've got a passion for it and you have worked in the industry for a long time. Yeah, it's interesting, Jeff, because I met you when you were director of CHIRP Maritime, weren't you? I was working for Maritime and Coast Guard Agency in commercial fishing safety and communications. And obviously you had that role of looking at data and confidential reporting of incidents and risk with CHIRP. And that's where we first met. So I know you've got a real interest, a passion for this subject. I have indeed, and you're right. Trip Maritime was a very challenging job, but I enjoyed championing various safety causes, and we did put a lot of information out there, and we did take on uh, various uh, organisations and institutions. So it did develop in me this desire to keep pushing and to maybe have a bigger impact, uh, perhaps at the IMO in particular with the fishing industry, which is very sadly neglected in the international context. And with these new fuels, it's important from the beginning that seafarers are not regarded as collateral damage in this huge move to green fuels. That would not be acceptable because we all know the risks. So I ask every guest, Jeff, if there was one thing that could be changed to improve safety, what would it be? It would be removing the variable of STCW implementation so that there is one harmonised standard. Yep, and you're working towards that now, aren't you, Jeff? It is our recommendation as we negotiate and discuss our position with major stakeholders of influence. Okay, well, perhaps you can come back and keep us updated on that. I would love to. So that's the end of our watch. I'm going to ring the bell. We're leaving the bridge and we head back to shore. 
Thank you. 